You're listening to Money FM 89.3 and it's now time for Under the Radar with me, Chua Tian. Now from content writing to providing human-like responses and chatbots and even coding, generative AI has made its potential known to the world with the introduction of ChatGPT. Besides that, did you know that generative AI can be used in the process of drug discovery? Today we speak with Insilico Medicine. Uh, this is a clinical stage AI-driven drug discovery company that is delivering breakthrough solutions to discover and develop medicines in areas such as cancer, immunity and ageing. The company was selected by NVIDIA as one of the top five AI companies for its potential for social impact back in 2017. But how does it work and what does a new drug discovery mean for the company? Separately, Insilico Medicine also signed a strategic research collaboration with pharmaceutical giant Sanofi in a deal worth up to get this 1.2 billion US dollars last November. What is the status right now? So for more on the company, let's speak to Dr. Alex Z, CEO of Insilico Medicine. Dr. Alex, welcome to the show. Very happy to be with you today. And uh, before we get started, Dr. Alex, I understand Insilico Medicine, you are an AI company that uses generative AI in drug discovery programs in cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's, ALS and more. Tell us more about the company and your value proposition then. Sure. So our company started uh, in 2014, originally in Baltimore uh, at Emerging Technology Centers of the Johns Hopkins University, and then we scaled globally. Uh, So we got into generative AI specifically around 2016. So after being exposed to the research by Ian Goodfellow out of uh, OpenAI at the time, uh, and uh, we were probably the first ones to publish a peer-reviewed paper on uh, the application of generative AI specifically to small molecule drug design. So instead of uh, searching for a needle in a haystack, trying to find the perfect molecule out of the many, many, many different uh, molecules made by nature or by other humans, uh, we utilize uh, generative AI to imagine the molecular structures with the desired properties. So trying to find those perfect molecules that uh, are likely to make good drugs. For those of you who are not familiar with drug discovery and with drugs in general, there are very, very few good molecules. So so that could be taken orally, right, as pills, uh, that will go to the right organ, that will uh, go after the specific uh, target that uh, is driving the disease. It's very difficult to get those because your body is very good at metabolizing pretty much everything. So you can eat anything you like and uh, uh, most molecules will be degraded. So that's why many people are going after biologics or antibodies and try to inject stuff in your body, right? Because then you're at least avoiding the GI tract. Then another problem is that you need to uh, bind to a specific target, specific protein of interest that is driving driving the disease and that is very difficult, right? Because those proteins are usually you know, protected from this kind of stuff, uh, evolutionary. So you need to find uh, molecules that bind to that specific protein and nothing else to ensure that uh, you are not intervening with uh, any other biological processes. So uh, generative AI, just like you, know, you would do with images uh, when you want to draw a specific picture with many, many, many uh, properties, you would uh, set those properties for a molecule uh, and the RAI would draw this molecule in a multidimensional space. Well, think of it in 3D. Uh, and then we would synthesize and make it and then test it. 
So that's just part of our pipeline where generative AI helps drug discovery. Of course, the most important part where we utilize generative AI is generative biology. We've been doing that since 2017, 2018. Uh, that is using AI to imagine biological data that humans do not really understand and interpret themselves. So you understand pictures, text, voice, and many other data types, but not you know, gene expression, methylation, so um, specific movements uh, and specific mm -hmm. uh, uh, values of uh, molecules at any given point in time. So we can now generate synthetic deep fakes of this uh, biological data with the desired properties so we don't need to touch a lot of patient data anymore. Mm. We can synthesize the fake one, billions of people, and simulate the behavior of those molecules that I've just described. So we combine both of those and design small molecules for a variety of targets that we discover and then take them all the way into human clinical trials ourselves and also with partners. Mm, okay. You might have touched on that, Dr. Alex, but I just want to make it clearer for our listeners, uh, the men in the street. Uh, how does drug discovery work traditionally versus with the use of AI? Because I understand it can cut the time and money involved uh, by up to 90%, and it is shown in what you've mentioned earlier so far. But just to make that clearer for our audience, how does it work? So usually it's on the biology side, when you're trying to decipher the mechanism of disease, Usually it's done uh, using um, academic institutions. So professors at many, many universities, uh, they do basic research uh, in diseases, trying to decipher the mechanism. And very often they stumble serendipitously. So by lucky coincidence, lucky chance uh, on uh, specific protein targets that might be implicated in a disease. Uh, you can also improve that search by, you know, trying to do genetic sequencing and a few other advanced technologies and make it a little better, but they use it anyway. Very rarely pharmaceutical companies discover really good targets. On the chemistry side, usually people go uh, or through very large molecular libraries and uh, uh, go after trial and error approach. So they test uh, many, many, many different molecules on human cells, on different proteins, on different mice models, trying to find the perfect molecule that will um, act in a way that they want it to act. And in our case, we just do this virtually very rapidly. And yes, you can significantly cut down the cost and time of specific those specific steps, so discovery. But later, you need to validate experimentally anyway and there, um, you would actually need to follow the traditional approach, even if you are an AI company. So with the first initial step, the search, uh, you basically go from search to generation. It's very similar to now how generative AI is transforming uh, the way you access knowledge. Uh, previously, you could you know, go through yellow pages and identify you know, businesses you like, or you know, go through into a library and try to search for something. And most likely, you're not going to find it, right? Because maybe the, those books have never been written. Um, later, you could use Google search or some other search engines where you would find the right link, click on that, and then explore. Nowadays, with uh, consumerized generative tools such as ChatGPT, you can just ask a question that will write the answer right away, generate the response. It might not be the, uh, the, the correct response, right? Because again, it's very early days for very snappy generative. If you want snappy response, 
very often it's inaccurate, right? In our case, mm -hmm. we actually take a lot of time in our generative modeling, uh, sometimes 72 hours to give you a response. We compute, we make those generative models com uh, compete with each other to ensure that we reach atomic precision so that if we synthesize and test, I mean, and later you've got six, nine months of testing ahead of you, so you're not exactly looking for a very snappy response, but think of it as, a, you know, GPT for chemistry and biology at the same time. Uh, mm -hmm. It's just uh, these early uh, kind of, instead of searching, you are now generating. Yes, and I can tell how powerful it can get as well. So let's talk about commercialization, Dr. Alex. What would you say is your business model and how do you position yourself against the, in the global AI-enabled drug discovery market? I mean, large pharma players, I would assume that they will have their own AI units. So how do you fit in in that regard? So sure, again, we had the early mover advantage and uh, it's working very well in our favor today. Um, so there were three phases that the company went through. So we've started as an algorithm company. So started focusing on designing those deep learning algorithms and specifically going after deep learning, even when everybody was criticizing us and saying that we need to go after more traditional approaches. And nobody believed in generative in you know, 2016 all the way to 2022. Seriously, so we were very, very, uh, we were criticized at every uh, level. So, and we are the only ones like this. Uh, so, we went through the algorithm stage. Then we became a software company. So we thought, okay, well, now we've developed the algorithms that people really like. Why don't I develop the software and let the others use it? Uh, and now, uh, top ten out, well, ten, ten out of the top twenty pharmaceutical companies. Uh, user have used uh, our software to discover drugs. Uh, so it became very, very popular. Uh, however, a software market is actually very small. So it's extremely important to have your own software in the market because you get uh, reinforcement learning with human feedback. So you don't need the pharmaceutical company's data. Usually you have more than they have, uh, but you really need them to give you feedback whether some certain uh, models worked or not just like what OpenAI does with you today. Uh, and we went through the software stage and then the most value in our industry is not in software. It is in the assets. It is in the pharmaceutical drugs. So we decided to make our own drugs, our own medicines. Uh, I don't like wow. the word drugs because we're gonna be crossed out of some of the search engines even, right, nowadays. Yeah. So we decided to build our own pipeline and when you are build, baking the cookies and selling the cookies mm. at any stage of the time of the development, that is much more value, uh, viable business model than helping others bake the cookies or providing cookie baking soft software. So because you can sell them for a much bigger price if you succeed, because everybody has you know 90 to 99% failure rates. If you discover a really, really good drug, it has a lot of value. It can be sold for many billions of dollars. And now we have over 30 programs going after different diseases. So you start from selling the software to the larger players uh, to eventually deciding that why not I make them myself as well uh, to, to get a slice of that pie. And uh, you're saying that your positioning against the pharma players is your first mover advantage at this point in time. Uh, so and efficiency. Efficiency. We nominated nine preclinical candidates last year. Usually yeah. a big pharmaceutical company would nominate four to five. Okay. 
So let's take a look at your global presence. The company is headquartered in Hong Kong. Your R&D and management resources are dotted all around the world, including in the US, China and UAE. Tell us more about the roles of the different markets then. So sure, it's extremely important to be global and uh, not look at the uh, you know national boundaries when you're thinking about uh, discovering new medicines that will help patients worldwide. I know that some politicians nowadays like to uh, kind of segregate the world and deglobalize, uh, but when if they are doing that uh, in our field, they are committing uh, uh, you know crime, crime against humanity because uh, people worldwide have cancer, people worldwide have Alzheimer's, diabetes. It's extremely important to collaborate globally, and. Um, uh, we decided to be in Asia because over the past 20 years, we saw a very similar transformation of the biotechnology industry as, this, as we've seen in IT and in computer hardware, for example. So over the past 20 years, China and several other countries um, invested uh, over half a trillion dollars, maybe more, into contract research organization infrastructure. So now you don't need to have your own lab you can rely on a reliable provider with hundreds of thousands or you know, tens of thousands of people, highly qualified scientists, who will cook your chemistry and uh, test the biology. So uh, all the way into mice and sometimes also human clinical trials. So you don't need to have your own lab. You can design anywhere in the world and uh, synthesize and test uh, at those contract research organizations. So for us, it's not only AI that makes us so efficient, it's also the ability to very rapidly parallelize many of the drug discovery and development processes uh, and run many, many of those studies in parallel. If they fail, they fail, we learn. If they succeed, we have double the data usually, and we have much higher confidence. So that's why it's very important to be in Asia, uh, specifically in China, because many of those CROs you need to have your own people supervising those scientists working at the bench. Uh, and if you don't have those people in the same time zone and uh, having the presence there, you are going to not get the best uh, uh, scientists and you are also going to waste a lot of time communicating. That's what we see with other companies currently. So you need to be as close to China as possible, preferably there. We also, of course, contract uh, Indian CROs as well. Uh, and CROs worldwide. Uh, so that's why we, the drug discovery team is in Shanghai. The fully robotics lab, we actually have a fully automated robotics lab uh, that we run end-to-end. -end, so it's predominantly focused on uh, target discovery. It's in Suzhou. Uh, we also have the target discovery uh, team uh, that is using AI to discover novel, novel targets and decipher the mechanism of disease in Hong Kong. So they need to be in the same time zone. The world capital of artificial intelligence is Montreal, Canada. So I'm actually proud to be Canadian. Um, and uh, uh, also University of Toronto. So that's where the deep neural networks came from, right? I mean, that's where most of the modern AI concepts were developed, including generative adversarial networks uh, by Ian Goodfellow and Yoshua Benjo. So we have AI mm -hmm. theory in Montreal. We also have UAE. The reason why we have UAE uh, manifold. So um, one is uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, a lot of really top uh, AI scientists became available and we 
ingested a lot of those AI refugees, so to speak, into Abu Dhabi in the UAE. So there, the personal tax is zero. Uh, also, the government provides you with very substantial subsidies if you do local R&D. And if you are bringing elite talent, so, you know, there are very, very few people that can do this, uh, you know, generative AI for chemistry or biology, it's, you know, maybe a thousand people globally. So you need to be able to get them somewhere. And uh, we hired from both sides of the border. So uh, we have a very substantial site in the UAE both software and applied artificial intelligence for chemistry and biology. Uh, and Taipei is quantum computing. So we wow. also are very, very focused. Actually, I'm a big believer in quantum. I don't know if it's going to be next year or next three years, but I don't think it's going to be five. And uh, quantum specifically accelerates generative engines uh, in chemistry. Mm -hmm. So there you don't need high accuracy, but you need to have very high speed. And uh, mm -hmm. we already see that we can get uh, a little bit of a speed up. So uh, we do a lot of work in quantum. Uh, of course, looked at Singapore and uh, would love to be there as well. It will take time. Uh, I think that uh, it's a wonderful place to be. Uh, mm -hmm. It needs to be a little bit more competitive, especially in our field, right? Because again, if you look at the benefits that other cities provide, uh, they are pretty, pretty substantial and that would require a very specific task force. Also, our industry has consolidated dramatically over the past two years. So when we started, there were maybe 500 companies. Right now, there are, at the top, there is probably like five. And uh, yeah, and it's probably much better to attract somebody who is very established rather than trying to incubate the new ones because they're just not going to be competitive. Nowadays, the barrier to entry is a phase one clinical stage asset out of your own pipeline. Okay, so let's take a look at the wider business environment, though, Dr. Alex. Insight A study and Insight A study said the global AI-enabled drug discovery and clinical trials market uh, valued at $450 million and uh, predicted to reach $3.64 billion by the year 2031. I must caveat that the currency is not specified. I assume that it is the US dollar. But in any case, we are looking at a CAGR of around 26% uh, during the forecast period, which I believe is a 10-year period. Uh, do you agree with this assessment, though? So there are multiple forecasts like that coming from different analytical agency uh, agencies. This one is just as good as others. Uh, and... Some of those are much more aggressive, some are uh, more conservative. Uh, it depends on what is included in those reports. So most of the money in software, so basically in uh, when you're selling the algorithm or a piece of software access to your platform, uh, it's on the clinical side, right? For the design of clinical trials, for patient enrollment, or even for sale, selling of the drugs, right? It's not in drug R&D. Drug R&D is very small software market. Actually, it's smaller than that. And it's growing rapidly, but it's not growing. Uh, it's not going to be, you know, tens of billions of dollars. Currently, my estimates is maybe it's like half a billion, maybe just a little bit more. So comes close to what you said. Uh, growing very rapidly, but those are small numbers. That is why you need to develop your own assets. I'll give you an example. Last year, a company called Nimbus um, they collaborated with Schrodinger. Schrodinger is a little bit kind of older school, computationally augmented um, drug design, a very respectable company, 30 years in the business. 
uh, a lot of people know how to use their software. So they gave their software and also support to a company called Nimbus to go after a very old target called TYK2, T-Y-K-2 uh, which is a kinase. And uh, they, Nimbus decided to design, design those molecules, develop those molecules, and uh, take them into psoriasis, right? And they demonstrated positive results in just phase two clinical study. So they completed phase two. And within four weeks, Takeda bought that drug only, not the company, for $6 billion, right? So now think about what you just said, you know, uh, 2031, uh, you know, $3 billion total global market. Here, one drug after phase two, $6 billion, right? $4 billion cash. So it is... Um, very substantial numbers. So I think that if you are talking about drug discovery, AI-powered drug discovery in general, the market is much, much more significant, right? It already is tens of billions because of that just, uh, uh, you know, tick two deal last year. Uh, and that's why we are developing our own pipeline and that's the business model, right? So I have some of the assets that just completed phase one, right? And uh, for a very broad disease, and if phase two results are great, that's, that's the business, right? So yes, you have to invest in those assets. It's like mining, diamond mining. Uh, but once you hit it, right? And once you hit the milestone, the payout is very substantial. So it's like a molecular casino. Uh, and um, it's much more substantial than what's quoted in that report. Mm, if you're just tuning in, we are now in conversation with Dr. Alex Z, CEO of Encilico Medicine. And Dr. Alex, I'm just going to put these two questions together in the interest of time. A couple of weeks ago, Encilico Medicine announced that you have successfully discovered a potent uh, molecule for the treatment of cancer. There's a lot of jargon in here, but what does it mean for your balance sheet? And what is uh, next for you in your pipeline? And what does it mean for the firm in terms of dollars and cents then? So sure, we actually nominated several. Uh, so usually we nominate a uh, preclinical candidate. So that is the last step before the molecule goes into human clinical trials. So it means that, uh, you know, all the preclinical work is complete. And uh, uh, we will nominate a few more. So last year, we nominated nine. Uh, and uh, what it means for us and to the balance sheet, uh, it means that we have discovered kind of a diamond, and now we polished it. And now it's ready for further polishing, right? And then a review by a committee, so to speak, if you thought about diamond business, right, for example. Uh, so for us, it means that we have reached a big milestone. Uh, usually at that milestone, at that stage, you can already start partnering with the pharmaceutical companies where they believe, or they can re review and then believe uh, and license that, uh, that, that molecule if the preclinical data satisfies their needs, usually those uh, partnering negotiations take six to 12 months, right? And sometimes even longer, believe it or not, right? Because they need to do a lot of due diligence, uh, the pharmaceutical companies, and uh, they need to convince their own scientists that your molecule is uh, better than theirs or uh, satisfies the standards of the molecule of, 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 of the company uh, or goes beyond those standards um, if they don't have uh, one in-house, right, to compare. So um, it's a huge milestone. Currently, there are only very few AI companies 
that have demonstrated that they can uh, nominate a preclinical candidate, right? So I think that globally it's maybe like seven uh, or six, uh, and several of them already failed in the clinical stage, uh, right? So it's still it's still a lottery, right? But the chances of success have increased dramatically, right? So because you have completed the preclinical experiments in mice and different models. Uh, and to us, it increases the attractiveness to investors because, um, and to everybody else, I guess, at this stage, just not to single us uh, out, um, because they can now also review the data rooms for those assets, and they don't need to value you as some mysterious AI company, right? With, uh, you know, maybe even if you have a lot of revenue, it doesn't necessarily mean that this revenue is going to be there in five years. Right. So I think that right now we see a huge hype in generative AI and some companies get uh, incredible valuations, even though nobody is even asking, is it sustainable? Right. So if you have a large therapeutic pipeline and each one of those assets has certain probability of success and the further you progress, the uh, like past preclinical candidate, the higher the success uh, probability. Uh, and you can very quickly do not present value risk adjusted analysis on those assets and value the company. So now AI, when many investors look at us, they value AI at zero, right? Or at very little because they just look at the assets, right? And that's what you want. You want the ultra credible scientists who are technically either your competitors or are super key opinion leaders in this field to value the assets and don't not look at you as an AI company, right? So yeah. very often we actually come in for partnering without telling people that we do AI. That is the that is the art. Okay. And uh, speaking of assets and uh, partnerships with big pharmaceutical companies, uh, in Silicon Medicine signed this strategic research collaboration with Sanofi in a deal worth up to 1.2 billion US dollars last November. I believe it has uh, several um, several milestones to reach in, in getting that 1.2 billion US dollars. How is that coming along so far? And on the whole for your company, what are some future plans? So sure, it's going along very well. So as you know, uh, in that uh, press release, we also announced some uh, near-term milestones and upfront payments that actually we have already received. So it's a very nice uh, way to, for a big pharma company to get into AI. I think that Sanofi is probably the smartest in this field. Um, so many of those companies um, are trying to do it themselves, right? And Sanofi, by the way, as well. Um, and so far, I have not seen a single case where a pharma company announced a preclinical candidate or a phase one asset out of AI and tangibly demonstrated that they can do it, right? So again, it never happened. I have not seen it. I'm in this industry for 10 years. So they like to talk about it. They like to hire thousands of people. But in general, I have not seen this efficiency that we, we, dem we demonstrate ourselves. And also I've seen one other company globally that can do something similar, but maybe not as fast and not as high quality. So um, for Sanofi, it's a great learning experience. They also, in our case, get access to all of our tools. So they, they acquire the superpowers we've got. Uh, and um, they also increase the probability of getting the asset uh, into clinic faster, 
because we have demonstrated that capability already. It still takes you know a few years to um, realize those projects, but uh, it's a wonderful project. And uh, for us, we of course it's not our only deal. We have several others. I have uh, some very uh, really cool deals, like for example, Phosphon Pharma. We identified a target called QPCTL for immune oncology, got 13 million upfront, uh, and uh, uh, we uh, have 50% rights on that molecule. And we have progressed already beyond. I cannot talk about forward-looking statement, forward-looking statements, but uh, the preclinical candidate was achieved within you know four months after the partnership was announced. So that was pretty cool. Mm. Right, sounds exciting for soon, Pharma, right? Thanks very much, Alex. That was Dr. Alex Z, CEO of Insilico Medicine. Thank you very much for joining us today on Money FM 89.3.